Good morning and uh, welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. We are thankful that you have joined us today uh, for this Lord's Day. We have been doing an Advent series. And uh, as we explained before, um, the Christmas time, um, the church calendar usually calls it Advent. And the reason why is it comes from a Latin word that means to arrive or to come. And it is about the coming of Jesus Christ, about the, uh, the, um, um, the Savior of the world being born in Bethlehem, living that perfect life so that he might lay down that life um, as a payment for our sins to give us freedom, to give us forgiveness, um, and to allow us to become children of God. So during this Advent season, we're doing a just short series, a, a number of uh, sermons that are just related to Christmas, to Christ's coming, and, uh, and we continue that um, today. Look at uh, um, our passage this morning. It will come from John chapter 1. It's a, it's a passage that you're probably really familiar with. It is that passage that we go to to speak of the deity of Christ and his incarnation. And we'll look at verses 1 through 14. We'll spend a, a little bit more time on the deity of Christ because uh, that is such a unique statement in the Gospel of John. Um, and then we will remind ourselves of uh, what it means that he has come um, the hymn that we are centering our, our, this particular Advent uh, sermon on is, O Come All Ye Faithful. I sometimes get confused with, O Come All Ye Faithful, and then, Come You Unfaithful. That's a, that's a wonderful song, by the way. But then, you know, like, sometimes when that comes up, I accidentally start singing the tune of, O Come, you know, All Ye Faithful. And, oh, it's all messed up, right? But, um, O Come All Ye Faithful. And there's nothing particularly uh, unique about this hymn, and that it's not, it's not super old. It is, um, it is at least uh, two, three hundred years old. Um, it's not written by anyone that's particularly prominent in church history. Um, but where it is valuable is that this hymn speaks about how we, as those that are the now faithful, should come. And in particular, the refrain is, Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Because as we think about Christ's advent, um, it becomes so kind of, I don't know, traditional, um, regular. It, it is something that comes up every year at the end of the year. And Christmas is so well celebrated and appreciated, and it should be, that sometimes it's almost difficult for us to gravitate our affection around the fact that this is Christ, God, very God, come into flesh just so that he could rescue sinners like you and I. And so it is an appropriate call for us to come and adore him. We want to make sure we understand that, that phrase. Um, adore comes from a Latin term that means to worship, as in adoration. We use it Right in our modern English, in the sense of uh, oh, look at that little that little kitten. Oh, I adore him. Right or you know like uh, you got that 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 special present. It's uh, very unique. And, oh, I adore this. We use it as a term of affection, which isn't a bad thing. But we might miss the centrality of what the hymn is calling us to do. Come, let us worship him. Let us bow our knee and take awe and wonder at the greatness of a God who would reach down from his transcendence, from his distance, from his greatness, to become flesh to rescue me. 
This is the story of Christmas. This is the story of Advent. And it is appropriate to call all the faithful to come and to worship that Savior. Give you an idea of where we're going with this in terms of uh, uh, John chapter 1. Really simple. And that is that Christ is the eternal word. And we'll describe what that means in terms of the deity of this word. Right. And then Christ, secondly, is the light of the world, meaning that uh, that, you know, the scriptures bear witness to the fact that he is the light, the life that the world needs. And then finally, that Christ is the word become flesh. And that will be our outline today. But let me read us our passage and then we'll kind of dive into understanding um, this particular um, well-known passage about uh, the greatness of our Savior Jesus Christ. This is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we come uh, to this uh, Christmas season, um, we're reminded of what the Advent, um, what it celebrates. That our Savior was born uh, in a nondescript small town, um, in a manger of all places. That the king of this universe would be born, and he would be born not to live uh, as if he was royalty, but to live as if he was common, normal, easy to overlook. And he would live that simple and humble life in a way that was unlike anyone before him, in perfection, in sinlessness, in purity, all in preparation that he might be the sacrifice that would take away our sins. Father, we praise you um, for that eternal and um, only God-like wisdom that would send your Son into this world to rescue sinners who deserve eternal punishment, but instead have received eternal life. We celebrate the truth of Christmas. We celebrate all the goodness that comes from it. Um, And we want to particularly worship and adore Uh, the Son of God, for all that he has accomplished for us. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we talk about um, uh, the Advent season, and we particularly talk about uh, the eternal word in terms of who Jesus Christ is, it it dawns on me that in the the opening few verses of John, um, you know, John is unique. He's, the gospel is unique in a lot of ways from the other three gospels. But one of the ways it's unique is that he does not describe the birth of Jesus Christ. This is the closest that he'll get to it. He speaks about the eternal word 
and how he is the word from the very beginning and how there is a witness about that word so that he might be proclaimed um, and that he became flesh. And that's about it. That's as close to the Christmas story as you get from the Gospel of John. So it is interesting, the components that he chooses, how he begins and what he wants to talk about. And two of the elements I just want to highlight that emphasize his deity is one, that he is eternal, and the second, right, that he is the creator or the giver of life. And you might think, okay, what's the, what's the big deal with that? Well, one big deal with that is those two elements in all of human history and thought define what we believe is God. Is it eternal, right? And can it give life, creatorship, right? Those two things determine the godhood of almost any being or thing that we think about. And the interesting thing is even the, the, the staunch unbeliever who believes that there is no God, he will yet ascribe to nature or to this universe those very categories, the nat- nature is eternal. Mother Nature gives us life and new forms of life. The universe is forever. And that universe is where, you know, life begins. It gives us life without recognizing that all things do have a beginning except for the one that has no beginning. We could call it the universe. You could call it Mother Nature. You could try to deny that there is a moral element to the, to the one that has created all things, but scripture would give you the exact opposite. It would give us a face for that God. And that face is Jesus Christ. So as we look to John chapter 1, um, this is how the gospel of John explains the person of Jesus, his origin. And it goes all the way back to eternity past. The eternal word in verses 1 um, through 5. It begins here in uh, verse 1 and 2. If you look at that, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. By speaking of Jesus Christ being the eternal Word of God, it, there's a, John makes a statement that is astounding, strange, and as Christians, probably a little too familiar to us. Right? The fact that he is called the Word And that he is from the beginning, right? As soon as you hear in the beginning, it should relate to us as it would to many of John's readers. The opening phrase of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God was as the creator. He was eternal. He already was there. He is the creator. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates everything that is in this material universe. This is the same story with Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. The, the, that, uh, that verb was in the imperfect tense will be repeated, right? And that imperfect tense is significant because the imperfect tense suggests that it was in process while these other things were taking place. So as the beginning was beginning, the word already was. He was already eternally there. But the question is, why does John, of all things, refer to Jesus, right? The second person of the Trinity. Why does he speak of the Christ or the Son of God as the Word? I like what Calvin wrote a little while ago, a long time ago. He says, I think he calls the Son of God the Word simply because, first, he is the eternal wisdom and will of God. 
See, logos word doesn't mean like the verbal actual words that you speak. It means your argument, you know, your, your concept, your idea, like, like it's your communication. That's what logos kind of imbibes. So, so Calvin thinks, well, he's the eternal wisdom and will of God. So it makes sense to call him the word. Secondly, because he is the express image of his purpose. How does God create the known universe? By speaking his word. And so logos would be the perfect expression for, for the second person of the Trinity. For just as, and Calvin again, in men, speech is called the expression of the thoughts. So it is not inappropriate to apply this to God and say that he expresses himself to us by his speech, capital S, or by his word, capital W. Jesus Christ is the expression of the otherwise invisible God. And the idea is at the very beginning, when the world, before the world began, at the very beginning, the eternal word already was. You notice that immediately after that, it says, and the word was with God. There's, there's a clarity of distinction. And then the phrase after that, and the word was God. There's a statement of unity. Distinction and unity. And this is why we have a, a theology of the Trinitarian God. That he is one God in essence, right? but different persons. The word, the second person of the Trinity, he was with God the preposition means that he, was, uh, that he was before God. It used to be used in the, in the, in the sense of being toward or facing something. Right? That, that's how the, the preposition began. But by the time of the New Testament, it has that sense of with somebody as in alongside them or in their personal presence. Especially if it's used of human beings, it says that so-and-so was with so-and-so. And, -so. and it, it doesn't mean that they just happened to be in the same place. It means that they had an interaction, a relationship. They were there together, intentionally. You know, our little ones, I'm, a, I'm always fond of thinking about how little ones adapt and change. But, you know, when they're really young, you know, early toddlers, you know, they parallel play. They don't really play with each other. They play next to each other. You know what I mean? Like, I'm playing with this, you're playing with that. We happen to be sitting next to each other, and we see each other, and it's like, all right, well, whatever, I, and I do my thing, right? And then as they get older, they become a little more social, and they want to play with each other. They interact with each other. That, that's the concept of this preposition. The idea is that the eternal word was with God. At the very beginning, before anything was, anything that we can think of existed, except for God himself, the word, the divine word, was with God. He was in relationship to him. He was beside him. But not only distinction, the second person of the Trinity, from the first person of the Trinity, but the word was God. That's the next phrase, right? In verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, distinction and fellowship. And the word was God, unity of essence. It is an interesting thing that some cults will take this particular phrase and say, well, it doesn't say that, that the word was, was God. It says that the word was a God. Because there's no definite article. The definite article would be the the, right? And it's true, there is no definite article. But this happens often through the book of John. 
In fact, this happens often through all the New Testament writings that you remove the definite article because you know who you're talking about. And by removing it, you emphasize that individual or that thing that you're talking about. Because it doesn't need a definite article, right? I mean, we, we use a definite article sometimes. We'll refer to certain individuals if they have a nickname, right? We call him G. Sometimes we call him the G, right? As if there is only one G, right? Uh, we do that often, but without the definite article, at least in the Greek, grammatically, what it does is it emphasizes the thing that you're talking about. It's not the word was a God. It's to say the word was God, right? All caps. Like God was the word is literally the, the, the ordering of the, of the phrase in the Greek. And to, to put an emphasis on the fact that this is God, very God. The, the ordering and the grammar of that particular phrase, right? Just, just four or three, right? You know, words in the Greek are so powerful to say that the word was indeed fully and absolutely God. It is John's intention to convey that which is most shocking about Jesus to his readers and to make sure that that colors and flavors the rest of the Gospel of John. Everything else that John's going to talk about is, is kind of categorically placed in containers of this is who I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am like, like he will speak about all the things he is. But to be clear, John wants to begin by saying that the second person of the Trinity, the son of God, Jesus Christ, come in flesh. He is the eternal word. He was always with God and he was always God, fully God. The depth of that Trinitarian truth, I'm not sure that we'll ever fully understand. We just take it for what the scriptures have said. And as a reiteration of that, to kind of draw back to the idea of, of all of creation, we said that the, that the two things that, that you need, right, is, is eternality and creative life-giving power, and that defines what we believe to be God. And it could be a force of nature. It could be the universe. It could be random stuff that is, is inanimate, that has no personality or life. Or it could be the God of the universe, as described in the Scriptures. As so verse 2 says, He was in the beginning with God. And again, reiterating the fact that with that, that imperfect tense was, he was already there as the beginning of the universe, right? As it launched, there was God, very God. There was the, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of them there. So that in Genesis 1.26, it, it describes to us, it explains to us why God speaks in the plural, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And he's probably speaking the father to the son, uh, to the spirit as one. Look at what Proverbs uh, 30 verse 4 says says there, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. 
It's talking about God. These are rhetorical questions because who can ascend to heaven and come down when he wishes? Who can gather the winds or, or wrap up the waters in his garment, meaning all the oceans of the world? Who can establish the, the edges, the boundaries of the earth? Only God can. So that what's his name and what is his son's name? Sure, you, you know, is to call our attention to the one true God. And the interesting thing is the, is the addition of this idea that his son has a name. See, the point is the scriptures have hinted at this throughout from the Genesis account forward. And the implications of these things about the eternal word, the deity of Christ, the implications of this. Oh, sorry. The implications of this is that Christ then, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is central to everything. I mean, what's the big deal that Jesus is God? You learned that in Sunday school at a young age, right? Who is Jesus? Is God. And then we get confused when the little kids, you ask the little kids in Sunday school, it says, uh, you know, you say like, hey, who created the universe? Jesus did. Say, like, okay, yeah, yeah, that, that's kind of accurate, right? Um, um, who died on the cross for us? Jesus did. Okay, good, good, good. And um, who did it? Jesus did. Like, like everything is Jesus did, right? Who sent the son to die for us? Jesus did, right? It's like, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus is the son that was sent. Jesus did, right? Like, it's just like, it all comes one together where it's all kind of flowed into itself. But the whole point is that what we should take advantage of or what we should concentrate on and regularly refresh ourselves on is this is outrageous, this is impossible. God, very God, has come to dwell among us. The centrality of Christ, God coming in flesh, the advent of Jesus, describes to us something that has never been thought of in human history. So that in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. The centrality of Jesus Christ for everything, for life, for purpose, for worship. He is at the center of it all. So when our, when our Christmas hymn says, come, let us adore him, it means to worship him. To obey him without hesitation. To worship him without stopping. To love him without reservation. Just to, just to enjoy the greatness of who God is visibly given to us in the pages of Scripture in the person of Jesus Christ. This great Trinitarian truth that he is God, very God, and that he is also human, man, very man, is given to us in the Nicene Creed. This is one of, like, this is a more modern translation of the Nicene Creed up there. The, 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 the Nicene Creed was a council of the church's bishops back in 325 A.D. And there's like 330 bishops or something, maybe 318 or something, right? And the, their, their, their role was to clarify the church's view of the nature of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, right? Well, that's what they'll come out with as a second person of the Trinity. Not that the church didn't affirm that. Most of the church did. But there was this particular teacher who was pretty sharp. His name was Arius. And the Arian heretic was that Christ was the most perfect of God's creations. But he's not equal to God. Arianism taught that, that Christ was a subset of God. He wasn't God, very God. And so the council condemned Arius' views and they produced this statement. We believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, 
the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God. And this is the phrase you want to catch. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of one being with the Father. See, so essence identical to the Father. He is God, very God. But he is truly man. He has come in the flesh so that he might save his people from his sins. The curious thing is that the hymn that we're talking about, O Come All Ye Faithful, I think we never sing the second stanza. This is the second stanza, the second verse. God of God. And it, I, we never sing it, so I can't even think of how that goes. Um, it's, O Come, see, I'm, I'm going to sing Come Ye and Faithful now. Okay, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Uh, o Come, let us, no, 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 no. Wait, how's this? Okay, that wasn't helpful. That wasn't helpful. Okay, I'll just tell you the lyrics because I can't. Re- For whatever reason, I have the 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 right the melody of "Come All Ye Unfaithful" in my mind, so I can't I can't sing it right. But it's God of God, light of light. Lo, He abhors not the virgin's womb. A very God, begotten, not created. And then it goes to "Oh, come, let us adore Him." Oh, come. Let- Oh, come all ye faithful. Oh, yes, it, right? God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. That's how it goes, right? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so God of God, light of light. What does that sound like? That's literally from the Nicene Creed. So the Christmas hymn, and, and curiously enough, the part that we don't sing is the part that affirms the very thing that we believe wholeheartedly, that he is God, very God, light, very light. And that's what we mean by him, Christ, being the eternal word. He is the eternal, he is eternal. He was with God, and he was God. When the beginning began, he is already there. The second thing we said about, about Godhood is not just his eternality, but also his ability to give life, his creatorship, and that's in verses five, 3 to 5. It says there, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It begins by talking about this, this tremendous statement that he is the source of all things. Um, the brilliant and uh, late, uh, uh, the atheist, right, um, Stephen Hawking, once said that the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. That, that's what he believed his atheistic scientific method was all for, to, describe, to get to one explanation, a single theory that describes the entire universe. Scripture gives us that. It gives us that in the opening verse. In the beginning, God created. And it gives us that here again. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there in the beginning. And all things were made through Him and without Him. Not anything made. There was not anything that was made, right, apart from Him. All things were made through Him. Um, This is talking about the second person of the Trinity, so it's talking about the Word or the Son. Um, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And you say, okay, but that says that the Father is a source of all things and for whom we exist. 
But it says this also, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There is some kind of, of unity of function amongst the Father, in the, with the Father and the Son that directs 1 Corinthians 8 to tell us that all things are created by the Father. Yes, it is his intention, but carried out through the Son. The ESV does a good job in translating those prepositions right, right? The Father, from whom are all things, for whom we exist. The Son, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. He is the agency by which all things were created. So is it appropriate to say that the Father created everything? Yes. Is it appropriate to say the Son created everything? Yes. Is it appropriate still to say that there is distinction between how they did that? And the answer is yes. Right? He is the creator of life. And all things are made through him. And I love that phrase, without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, there is no thing that exists in reality that exists apart from him. Nothing just created itself. It all has a source in him. Without him, there's not even a single one thing that exists in the universe. The implication of that, I think we see in Colossians 1, 16 to 17, for by him, is talking about the Christ, the Son of God, the eternal word. All things were created. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. It doesn't have to be visible for it to be his creation. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, amongst the Hebrews, those phrases refer to angelic beings and their particular ranks or stations. And so it may be a reference to spiritual things. The point being that at the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. See, this is the implication of Jesus being God. It means that everything was created by him or through him by his agency, and it exists for him. But look at verse 17. And it is before all things, and in him all things hold, to, hold together. He is before all. There, there is nothing greater than him. And everything is sustained because of him. What scripture affirms about the, the creator God is that he is not just an agent of life and the universe, but he's a sustainer. He keeps this world together, verse 17. It, it means that if this is true, what John is suggesting, if this is true, and we know theologically it is true, we know biblically it is true, then Christ, as the eternal word, his existence, his life, would demand something on all of us. And that's what the next phrase says. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's characteristic of John, the author, right? Whether it's the Gospel of John or the, the letters of John later on in the New Testament, that he uses vocabulary without giving us very clear definition. of it. He is life. In fact, in the Greek, super easy to translate. Right? Like, like First-year Greek students, we translate 1 John, the entire letter, because it's the easiest Greek in the New Testament to translate. It is the most difficult to understand because the vocabulary is simple. He was, in him was life, and this life was the light of men. It's easy to say. It's easy to translate. And you say, okay, what does that mean? And you go, oh, I'm not sure. I, I think John means either something specific 
or something more general. I take the more general, and I think he means basically that as the creator of all things, he is the source of all life. But he is the source of life in such a way that all human beings find their light in him, meaning that we have an emanation. Something comes from him. And like the rays of the sun, they shine upon us in a way that our life keeps seeking its source. It is a distinctly human characteristic that we are always trying to figure out our purpose in existence, right? Animals don't really do that. They just kind of, they just kind of eat. They eat, they poo, right? They reproduce, they just do their thing, right? It's almost instinctual to them and that's all there is. I mean, they're cute and we should be nice to animals. I'm not, I'm not angry at animals. I, I, I like doggies in particular. Cats I could do without, but you know, like, like, you know, they're, they're wonderful creations of God and, and I think in some ways meant for our companionship and good. But the spark in humanity in desiring to explain this universe, atheists, brilliant minds wanting to come up with a theory that explains why we are here, that, that spark, that light in men, that is because we are drawn or we are given life from a creator. And in the book of John, Right? The idea that Jesus is life or that he is light permeates all over. In fact, he uses the term life 36 times more than any other writer in the New Testament. In fact, he uses the term Zoe for life. Um, he uses it so often that he uses one fourth of all of the word Zoe used in the entirety of the New Testament is in this one letter, this one book. Jesus is life. And that's supposed to mean something, right? All things are made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. He's the source of everything that lives and breathes and acts. And, you know, everything that is delightful because it is alive. But he is, he is light or he is life. And that life connects us to him. That life was the light of men. It's as if something should turn on in us. In verse 5, the light, his light, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, a little bit of a mystery what John is referring to. I, I think I know the allusion, meaning like, is he referring to something in the Old Testament? He is. He's talking about how God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the first thing he does, he says, let there be light. Right? And the light, in particular, overcomes all darkness. Dar darkness is not a thing, right? I mean, like, you know, we watch, like, these cartoons where, like, I don't know, some evil person uses darkness and casts darkness. Another person uses light and casts... It's not even like that. Like, it, it, yin and yang is not a real thing, right? There isn't just a shadow substance and a light... Darkness is literally the absence of light. And when the light turns on, it not just abolishes or casts out darkness, it completely overcomes it. Darkness doesn't have like an anti-photon that keeps the light back, right? And that the light is just a little stronger. No, darkness is just the light is not present. But as soon as the light goes on, then that's all there is. And that's the point, right? I think the allusion is to that. Right? The, if it's drawing from something in the Old Testament, it's drawing back to the creation account. And now God says, let there be light. And there is light. And it banishes the darkness. And from that moment on, the universe is filled with light. 
lesser lights at night, greater lights in the day, but light is part of the universe that God has created. And it's not a surprise that almost all of life depends on light. Okay, that's the biblical Old Testament illusion. What, what does he mean from this, that the light shines in the darkness and darkness has not overcome it? And I gotta be, I, I'm not that sir, sure. I, I think he means that in a spiritual sense, in a metaphorical sense, that this light is able to banish out darkness. And no matter what darkness comes, spiritual darkness has come, it is not able to banish the light of God for the things that are good and excellent and redeemed. It might mean specifically of the victory over sin and darkness by the light of the world. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So he might be, he, I, I think John is referencing the idea that, that this spark of light that is the life of Jesus Christ, right, that will overcome the darkness. No matter how dark it gets, we will overcome if we are in Christ. Because Christ is overcome. Because the cross is evident. Is evidence of the fact that he has overcome the darkness and that light has won. And you think of the implications of Christ being the eternal word then, right? And being the creator of life. It, it makes sense to our song that we should call all to come and adore him. Not, not to just come and go, oh, he's so sweet, right? To adore him in that affectionate sense, but adore him in the sense of come and bow down. There is a God. You can ascribe to the universe its godhood to some inanimate or, you know, some cosmic force. But in the end, there is a God and he has a face and he has an affection. He acts out in ways that tell us that he has personhood and we are made in his image. He is not created in ours. So everything that is good about humanity is a spark of the light that comes from the eternal word. The eternal word the creator of life. Well, we'll move quicker to the second point. The second point is that he is, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. This is verse 6 all the way to verse 13. <clears throat> it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So verses 6 through 8 speak of the witness to the light, a particular man, we're talking about John the Baptist. And it is a curiosity, and many scholars have asked, why would John the Apostle write about John the Baptist so prominently after talking about the eternal word? Why is that significant? And that's a good question. I think, if I were to take a guess, it's because the one that has come, the eternal word come to flesh, this doesn't happen by just, I don't know, randomness. God doesn't just kind of flip a coin and go, okay, you know what? Um, let's send the sun now, right? He doesn't spin a wheel and try to figure out when. It's, it's not, there's not a randomness to why he sends Christ into the world. In fact, it has been prophesied through the Old Testament. And so when it says there was a man sent from God, right? The idea that he is sent from God suggests that John was a prophet. And as that prophet came, he came to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And I think, it's, I think his point is this is a fulfillment of Scripture. There is a time like in the book of Acts, Acts 19, where Paul the apostle runs into individuals 
um, who have not heard, right, of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's like, okay, but then what baptism were you baptized into? And they said, oh, we just know the baptism of John. So the scriptures make a distinction between the baptism of John, because Paul would say, and you would share the gospel with them, tell them about Jesus, his death, and his resurrection, and that, that baptism, Christian baptism, is distinct from John's baptism, because this baptism is a union in Christ, right? You die with him, and you're raised to new life with him. That's our Christian baptism that the church has an ordinance to fulfill. John's baptism the scriptures call a baptism of repentance. And this is what this means. That John the Baptist, he called people to repentance so that they would be baptized in the water as a sign of their willingness to, to basically, you know, put away their old manner of life and to live for God. What's interesting about this is in the intertestamental period, this became kind of a ceremonial rite for pagans, for, for Gentiles, for unbelievers to come into the Jewish faith. They were renouncing their old pagan ways. They would be baptized, right? And they would now be declared part of the nation of Israel. John the Baptist was calling the nation of Israel to be baptized in the water for their repentance from their sinfulness as if they were the pagans, as if they were Gentiles. This was his role, to call people out to repentance, and then to prepare the way for them to receive the one that can cleanse them from sins once and for all. It's the fulfillment of Malachi 4, right? Um, one of the uh, minor prophets. And they're minor prophets not because we don't care about them and they're not as skilled as the major prophets, but they're minor prophets because their books are smaller, right? But Malachi 4, 5, 6 says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so when the angel of the Lord appears to Zacharias, John the Baptist's dad, he tells them that this is what he's going to do. He's going he's gonna to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and to children to their fathers so that he might prepare the way. So there was in the Old Testament a promise of one that would prepare the way, one coming in the spirit of Elijah, not actually Elijah, but someone like him that would come and prepare the way before the Messiah would come, before the, the chosen one would come, the anointed one would come to take away their sins. That's why... When John is asked, later on in John chapter 1, verse 19 and 21, when people ask him, is he the Christ? He says, no, I'm not the Christ. And he says, no, I'm not Elijah. Right? He says, no, I'm not the prophet. And I think what he means by that is I'm not actual Elijah, reborn. I come in his spirit, maybe, and he doesn't say anything more than that. He just denies being Christ, denies being Elijah, or that prophet that's supposed to come, that's supposed to be in the spirit of Moses, right? He says, I, I'm not any of those guys basically reborn. But Jesus in Matthew 11 says that if you're willing to hear it, John was Elijah to come. Why does he say that? Because he fulfills the prophecy of the forerunner who is supposed to come in the spirit and power of Elijah and make ready the people, right? And prepare them to receive the Lord. He's a fulfillment of prophecy. And so the reason why the witness of the light is important is because this is part of God's plan. 
God didn't all of a sudden go, you know what would be a fantastic idea for all the sinners in the world? If I sent my son to that dude. And then the Trinity is high-fiving. And the angels are like, dude, what a brilliant idea. It didn't just come to him all of a sudden. This was decreed throughout all of human sinful history. Right? In the pages of Scripture, there would come one that would break the serpent's head. There would come one, right, who would cleanse the people of their sins. There would one come one that would sit on the throne of David forever. And it correlated with that is there become a forerunner, one in the spirit of Elijah that would prepare the people for his coming. At the Passover meal, as part of the Passover meal, our Jewish friends would send the youngest child to the door and they would see if Elijah's there. And you think, well, why did they check for Elijah? Didn't they check for the Christ? Well, see, that's the point. They know Elijah must come first. So if Elijah's there, then the Christ is about to follow. It's become more of a tradition than anything that's with any real expectation. But in a genuine right, Jewish Seder meal, there should be a spot, a, a space reserved with a goblet of wine and plate setting, etc., for Elijah. It's built into them that they're supposed to expect the coming of the Messiah. And what would signal that? The one that is witness to the light. And that's my point. I think John's trying to, trying to establish for his Jewish audience the idea that he is in fulfillment of all the scriptures concerning the Christ. That's why verse 6, uh, verse six and 7 and 8 are here. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So how then, and we would ask, how then did his people receive him? Verses 9 to 11. This is about the rejection of the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So in some sense, Jesus, the Spirit of God, right, was manifest. Like the, the world should know him. The world was made by him, so the world should know him. He is the true creator of this world. And yet the world did not know him did not recognize him as God, did not have a relationship with him, did not come and adore him. He came to his own, verse 11 says, and his own people did not receive him. You know, as uh, the gospel, um, this gospel, the gospel of John unfolds, we find that the word incarnate, uh, um, the light of the world, that he comes and he bears the testimony of who God is and what we can be in him, and his own people rejected him. The irony that the one that has created them, the one to whom they should naturally bow down and worship, is the very one that his own people, the people that, that, that actually care for and steward the scriptures of God, the promises of God, of the Messiah to come, they're the ones that missed and rejected. And a famous passage that is quoted in the New Testament frequently of Jesus from Psalm 118.22. The stone that the builders rejected, who would the builders be? It'd, it'd be the leaders of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. You notice that? It's the Lord as in small caps, as in this is Yahweh's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes, meaning it is wondrous. It's miraculous. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you 
from the house of the Lord. See, throughout the scriptures, there is this sense that, that one in the spirit of Elijah would come as witness and he would bear witness and that the people who should know the best, they would reject him. That shouldn't shock us because it's the depth of our sinfulness to know the gospel and to say, ah, I don't need it. I have my own life to live. I got so much more important things to do. To hear that Jesus is God, very God, and to go, okay, well, that's cool, but what is it, what's in it for me? is astounding, right? It is an entitlement that goes way beyond being spoiled kids. All of us struggle with some sense of entitlement where we're, our expectation is it would be nice if I'm the one that's singled out for promotion. It'd be nice if I'm the greatest player on the court. It'd be nice if I am the, the most brilliant maestro ever, ever known. If, it'd be nice if my creative ability was demonstrated so that everyone would recognize my greatness. It'd be nice if God did those things particularly, specifically for me to make my life happy, well-pleasing, and easy. It's the height of our selfish arrogance when we don't recognize that there is a God and he governs all and in his perfect wisdom, he even uses difficulties and pains to draw us to himself. Most of your testimonies, if you're a Christian in this room, are touched with some kind of pain because we need to understand the consequence of sin and the pain that it brings for us to realize how desperately we need a Savior. Right? So, Christ is the light of the world. There was a witness to the light, and that witness comes from Scripture, and is, it is something that is established from way back. Is a reflection, oh, rejection of the light. Sorry, my eyes are bad. Rejection of the light, right? That those that should know him best did not receive him. But there would be those that would become children of the light. Look at verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, and again, I wish you wish, I wish, John was more clear about the vocabulary that he's using, that he would define it more. He just says receiving him, and it's, a, it's the most simple word for receiving him. And I think John simply means those that receive, and he defines it, who believe in his name. He gave